C.S. Lewis once said that the first qualification uh, for judging the workmanship of anything, whether it's a corkscrew to a cathedral, is to know what it is, what it's intended to do, and how to use it. And Mark has written a new kind of book. No one had ever written a book like this, a gospel. And like a biography, its purpose is to enable us to get to know someone. But unlike a modern biography, it is not uh, rigidly reporting events in the sequence in which they happen. Oh, sometimes Mark does that, as we saw last week. But sometimes uh, what he does, and he does it in our text this morning, is he gathers up a selection of topically and thematically related events. And so we have the first of five stories of conflict. And they all follow the same pattern. Jesus does something surprising. The scribes, the religious authorities on the scene, uh, object. They challenge it. And then Jesus silences them with his response. And Mark wants to explode all conventional thinking about Jesus. Jesus is not predictable. He's controversial. His actions shock and amaze people. He was edgy, and as a result, people were offended by him. Now, these five stories should hit us like a roundhouse kick in a mixed martial arts contest. But they don't, because most of you have heard them many times. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit, before we read, to help us to feel the impact of what is written here. Please, if you would, stand. That's our practice. Mark chapter 2, we're going to read first 17 verses, and let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, most of us are very familiar with these stories, and we don't feel their power. We're not shocked uh, by them. And we ask that you'd give us fresh eyes and ears, hearts and minds that are receptive, that we might know Jesus better that we might see who he really is and not whom we would like him to be or we imagine. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many followers. There were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who were sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You may take your seats. When we moved to our home in Atlanta, the faucet in the kitchen sink began uh, to drip. And the leak worsened and worsened, and I just knew it had to be replaced. That time, Moen ran a lot of ads. They had a tagline that went like this. Buy it once and keep it for life. That sounded good to me. I'll do this once, never have to do it again. But a few months later, the faucet uh, uh, that I'd had a plumber install was leaking again. In fact, every time I washed the dishes, a pool of water began to form on the countertop, and then it ran down to the floor. I needed a wet vac to clean up. It was that kind of leaking. And uh, so I did the manly thing what any of you men would do, I went to Home Depot. And I got the part, right? And then I went to install the part. And this particular faucet had a cartridge in the center, as these new faucets do with the lever. You probably have one like that. And uh, I couldn't get it out. And I didn't want to take a tool to it because I didn't want to break it. So I called a plumber. And he came, and with a new cartridge... And about 10 minutes of his time, I was $200 poorer. <laughs> and it was fixed, but it wasn't fixed. And so I called the plumber back, and he said, you need to call Moen. And I described the leak for them. And they said, oh, you have a vacuum lock. We're very sorry. We'll send you the right parts. And so I called a different plumber and asked him to come and install it. And as that plumber arrives, he inspects the sink, and he notices that there's a lake underneath it. I hadn't seen it at all. I just missed that completely. Often we experience life like this, don't we? We're focused on the surface issues, the surface needs in our life, and we don't see the deeper ones. We often think our needs are material. You know, a good night's rest, a new set of clothes, a better ride. If we're sick, to regain our health. If we're unemployed, to have meaningful work with adequate income. If we're lonely friends, if we're disappointed in our marriage, our spouse to change. Jesus calls us to see below the surface of our lives. He does it this way. Jesus returns to Capernaum, which becomes his home base in the north, and he went into a home that's probably Peter's. And news of his arrival spread fast. 
And so people gathered. Probably up to 50 people fit into this home. And there were probably more than that outside. And he preached the word to him. That was the priority of Jesus' ministry. And it is the priority of every church that aligns itself uh, with Jesus. It gives significant time and energy to preaching. Four men bring a friend to the house. He is paralyzed, and so they carry him on his sleeping mat. All the doors are blocked. It's just not possible to reach Jesus from the outside. And so they walk up the stone staircase to the roof of this home. Now, in Palestine at this time, the roofs of homes were flat, much like a deck. It was a place to get outside and get some fresh air, a place to eat out of, out of the heat of your own home, and a place to do laundry. And the roof was constructed by setting beams across the walls, and on top of them were layers of poles and sticks, followed by a layer of thatch and then mud. And this particular house, we know from another gospel, had uh, clay tiles on it. And these four determined men dig through that uh, roof and lower the man in front of Jesus. Dirt and debris fall on those beneath them. The homeowner, maybe Peter, well, is probably pretty upset. What he sees is property damage. But what Jesus sees is faith. These men are displaying faith by their bold actions. And then the unexpected happens. Instead of healing this man, Jesus declares his sins are forgiven. Now there are some scribes, there are experts in the Old Testament uh, law and the oral tradition that grown up around it, and they are scandalized by what takes place. They're thinking, why does this man speak thus? They're certain he is blaspheming and deserving of death. Now, to understand their reaction, uh, you need to know the three things that they believed. Actually, everybody in that room that day believed these things. Now, for you boys and girls, uh, sin is an offense. It might be something hurtful that somebody does to you. It could be something that's rude or something that's just wrong. Everybody in that room believed that the forgiveness of sins was not cheap. It required a sacrifice. Rabbis and scribes uh, could not pronounce forgiveness. In fact, for an intentionally done sin, only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement, could pronounce forgiveness. Even the Messiah, when he came, uh, wasn't expected to forgive sins. The second thing they all believed was that only the offended party uh, can forgive. Now just suppose for a moment, let's do this thought experiment with me. Uh, uh, you and I are both out shopping, and I happen to park my car next to yours. And as I'm going out uh, to get my car to leave, somebody backs into your car and does several thousand dollars worth of damage. It doesn't take much of a bump anymore to get that kind of bill. And uh, uh, I run over to the driver who's upset and is reaching uh, in their glove compartment for you know, their insurance information. And I say, I forgive you. You don't need to leave any of that information at all. We don't need your contact information, your insurance. 
I imagine you'd be a little upset if you had seen me do that. After all, who am I to forgive the injury against you? The third thing they all believed was, and the Old Testament taught this, that all sin is ultimately and most deeply an offense against God. A classic picture of this comes from the life of King David as he seeks mercy uh, in Psalm 51. David the king is on his rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. He finds out that she's married to one of the officers in his army. He summons her to his residence. He seduces her. She becomes pregnant and then he seeks to cover it up. His army officers recalled, but he is uncooperative. And so David orders in place in the front line where he will be killed. And when he's dead, David takes him, takes her as his wife. And then God, who's seen it all, sends a prophet, Nathan, to confront him. In Psalm 51, David cries out for mercy with these words. Against you, only you, have I sinned. Well, how can that be right? What about the army officer? What about this woman? You see, it's because sin is the breaking of any of God's laws. Whether you intentionally go against them or you fail to do all that's required. Now, some of you are ready to tune me out. You actually deeply harbor a suspicion that God is out to ruin our fun. You think if there's a God, he wouldn't be so worked up about rules and regulations. You probably, you probably agree with the sentiments that Al Pacino's character, who was the devil in the film, The Devil's Advocate, expressed uh, when he talked about how unfair it was that God gives us natural urges and desires and then instructs us, Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, but don't swallow. That's how life seems. But let me appeal to you to just listen to this little vignette out of the life of a man named Gary uh, Richmond. He was a zookeeper at one time. On the first day of work, he arrived, and his supervisor uh, uh, said this to him, Richmond? These keys will let you in to care for millions of dollars worth of animals. Some of them could never be replaced. But you could be, if you get my drift. Some of those animals would hurt themselves if they got out. And more significantly, they might hurt other people. And you wouldn't want that on your conscience. I took him seriously, he writes, I performed flawlessly uh, for four months, and then something happened with the most dangerous animal in the exhibit. Ivan, a polar bear, 900 pounds, who had killed two of his potential mates already and exhibited hostility toward every human that came uh, near his enclosure. And I let him out of his night quarters into his day area. It was a beautiful sunny morning, and I pulled the lever to his guillotine door, and no sooner had he passed under that than I realized that I'd left the other door open, just right at the end of the hall. And Ivan could walk to the other end of the exhibit through that door, and if he so chose, 
eat me. In terror, I looked at the door. Ivan was a creature of great habit. Uh, he would walk out for three paces, turn to the right, and then uh, walk till he reached the guillotine door, the other door, and bump his head against it. And then he would return and walk back and bump his head against that door. He would do that for an hour, and I had timed it. I knew it took him exactly 17 seconds. And so I timed his cycle so that when his back was turned to me, because those of you who are hunters know that animals are keenly aware of changes in their environments. And I sprinted with my heart pounding in my chest to the other door. As I was reaching for the handle, I could see that Ivan was eight feet from me. I dove, slammed the handle down, and the door fell. And when I looked up again, Ivan was looking through the window at me. Now, Gary Richmond was instructed to be careful when he handled the zoo animals. Was his supervisor being unfair, harsh, mean when he gave these instructions? Well, of course not. He knew that there were dangers to everyone if Richmond acted carelessly. And God is no different when he communicates uh, the his rules, his laws, his expectations for human uh, life. His instructions are to guard us against self-destructive and hurtful acts. You see, the act of adultery is a destructive act. It's just as destructive as swimming to the deep end of a pool and breathing underwater. The only really big difference is, is that the damage takes a lot longer to show up. Only God could forgive this man. Everyone in the room knew this man was a sinner. No matter what he had done, that he had offended God most deeply and that forgiveness was not cheap. But talk is, and Jesus knows all this, he knows what they're thinking and he asks them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? Forgiveness, of course, is unverifiable, but healing is not. And so Jesus commands the man, get up, take your bed, and go home, and immediately he does, and everyone is amazed. Now Mark is writing this, expecting you to respond to this story. He wants you to find yourself in it. You're supposed to see yourself as the paralytic. Like him, we have obvious needs and deeper needs. Our deepest needs are all connected to God. God is the center of all things, of all reality and of our lives. And unlike the paralytic, excuse me, like the paralytic, we cannot fix this problem we have with God. Because our greatest problem is that we've sinned against God. We've lost our connection with God. And so Mark poses this question, and he'll do this again and again, and he intends for you to answer it. Who can forgive sins? The Christians who are reading this know they should supply the answer, Jesus. Jesus put it this way. He says that he is the son of man. Now, this is not code for I'm a human being. A lot of people think that, but that is not what this means. It's a reference 
to the prophecy of Daniel. It's a figure from the Old Testament. The Son of Man is a figure who exercises divine authority in judgment. In other words, he has the power to condemn or the power to acquit. He can forgive. Jesus has come to heal the paralysis in our lives. He's come to touch the deepest paralysis, the deepest things that are broken in us, the anger that we cannot control, the impulse to hide from deep relationships, our destructive tendencies, our refusal to take responsibility and to act. This paralysis of spirit is shared by everyone because we've all lost our connection to God. And Jesus alone can reconnect us to God. He alone can remove our offense. And in a holistic way, he addresses our need for redemptive healing, both spiritually and physically. Jesus has come to give us a new beginning, a new beginning in our lives, and then new beginnings after new beginnings, like the promise of dawn each day. The title, The Son of Man, is actually Jesus' favorite title for him Self, And he uses it many, many times in Mark's gospel and most frequently in relation to his suffering. His authority is most fully seen in his humiliation and his death. That's the real scandal here. It's the scandal of grace that God would become a human being, identify with us, take uh, the anger of God that is justly due to us for our offenses against his person that he would experience what we deserve. We also see a clear picture of the nature of faith here. Faith is action. It's not first and foremost knowing certain things. No, it's active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest needs, your most heartfelt needs. And these men are determined not to let any obstacle stand between them and Jesus. And so they act to remove the barriers between their friend and him. What's keeping you from Jesus? Is it the pressures and worries of life? Is it a fear about what it might cost you if you were to surrender to him? Is it your need for control? If you need a clearer picture of Jesus, please keep coming. Mark will give it to you. If you have questions, we'd be glad to try to help you find answers to them. The first edgy thing Jesus does is he forgives the sins of the paralytic, and then he heals him. The second is this, that Jesus calls us He calls, excuse me, the despised and outcast to follow him, and he calls us, likewise, to embrace them. Jesus calls the despised and the outcast to follow him. Jesus does the most unexpected thing in calling Levi. Jesus is beside the lake, a crowd uh, begins to form. He sees Levi sitting in his tax collector boots, and he summons him, come follow me, and immediately he comes. Mark doesn't tell us anything else about Levi. But he makes these two points. He's a tax collector, and he became a disciple solely on the basis 
of Jesus' authoritative summons. Mark presents Levi in him an act not only of following Jesus, but of receiving forgiveness as his connection with God is being restored. Why do I say that? Well, because tax collectors were actually the worst of the worst people in that time. They were ostracized among faithful, pious uh, Jews. Tax collectors, you see, were hated because they worked for the Romans, who were occupiers and oppressors. Just think if you were a Palestinian Arab living in the Gaza Strip and you worked for the Israeli government, how other people would view you. Well, that's how they viewed uh, Levi. And uh, because Levi bought this position and he worked in a tax farming situation that rewarded graft and greed. So they used, and he did, his position to steal from people. And so they were despised, they were hated, uh, they were viewed on par with murderers. They were expelled from synagogues, their families looked upon them as a source of shame, they could not do jury uh, duty, Uh, Jews were commanded to refuse any money from them, even if it was a gift for the poor. And rabbis taught that it was all right to lie to them. And Jesus forgives this man and invites him into the inner circle of his followers. To say that Andrew, Simon, James, and John are going to need a little time to warm up to him, well, that's probably an understatement because it's likely that his tax booth is by the lake because he's collecting taxes on the transportation of goods, including fish. Now, in the way that Mark writes this, uh, he wants us to see that what happens next is that Levi arranges a banquet to celebrate his call to be a disciple of Jesus. He holds a dinner party. He's wealthy, and so the food is exquisite. The bar is open, and the guests are the only people in Israel who would associate with a tax collector, other tax collectors, and sinners. These are people whose lifestyle is openly sinful. They're not occasional sinners. No, they are habitual. Some of them are professional sinners. You see, they're the people that the psalmist speaks of when he says the wicked. That's who's at this banquet. Some teachers of the law come into the party. They are not crashing the party, by the way. In the first century, uh, dinner parties were public and people were free to come and go. And they are deeply offended that Jesus, a holy man, is eating with these people. You need to understand that there was a culture war going on. The teachers of the law are seeking to call people back to holiness, to a moral lifestyle, uh, from the corrupting influence of Greco-Roman culture around them. And they said that the dinner table was the dividing line in this war. Who you ate with declared whose side you were on. To be faithful to God, you didn't eat with immoral people. You didn't extend friendship to them by having a meal with them. Because in doing so, what you were really saying is, I approve of your lifestyle. 
And so they asked Jesus' disciples, what is going on? And Jesus himself responds to them with a proverb that just drips with irony. What kind of doctor never sees sick patients? What kind of hospital doesn't treat ill people? And here's the scandal. Jesus is announcing his agenda. This is the program of his ministry. Jesus is banqueting with the bad. He's come to the least, the last, and the lost. And he is inviting them to be his disciples without first requiring that they repent. Repentance is not the precondition to follow Jesus. You don't have to stop being immoral before following him. The scribes said that the law, what it taught was that the only people who could be connected to God, close with God, were people who kept the law, who obeyed his words, who refrained from sin, who kept away from evil uh, people. Only those people would be righteous in God's eyes. And so Jesus scandalizes them because he loves the wicked while they are still sinners. And Mark wants us to see something else here. Jesus is the real host of this meal. This meal foreshadows the banquet that Jesus will hold at the end of human history. And here are the takeaways for us from these two scenes. Levi and those at the party were religious outsiders. They were societal outsiders. This is the scandal of the gospel. Jesus offers forgiveness and not moral reformation. Moral reformation is not the precondition to have a relationship with God through him. Jesus doesn't demand evidence of repentance in the paralytic's life or of Levi's before he calls them to follow, before he forgives them of their sin. Let that sink in for just a moment. You see, to follow Jesus supersedes all calls for moral reformation. Getting connected to God is more urgent than morality. You don't clean up your life or your past in order to be worthy of receiving forgiveness of sins or to start a relationship with Jesus. This love that Jesus shows the tax collectors and sinners is spread around liberally. Jesus associates with such people. Uh, He doesn't wait for it to happen. He doesn't wait for invitations into their lives. He initiates relationships. And we're told, surprisingly, in verse 15, that many of his followers had uh, come to this banquet. They were among, well, the wicked among those that were viewed as the least faithful in Israel. We're not told how many of them there were, how many had repented and reformed in time. Jesus loved them without calculation. And this love of Jesus, once it's received, once you embrace it, it changes us, it transforms us. Out of gratitude, we become followers and we become obedient, and our lives uh, begin to transform. You see, the scribes came to enlighten people about God's ways, about the law, and Jesus comes to redeem. 
And given that mission, it is senseless for Jesus to shun tax collectors and prostitutes and habitual notorious sinners. It's as senseless as a doctor who doesn't see sick patients. The grace of God extends and overcomes the deepest human depravity. And Jesus deliberately puts Levi into the twelve. And I'm sure it did not sit well with the fishermen. After all, they'd been ripped off. And Jesus is calling the other disciples to repent of every form of exclusiveness, whether it's moral or theological or cultural, of self-righteousness, of the pride of learning, the pride of ethnicity. Now, as a church, it can be hard to face that we're not free of these things. Actually, many people suspect, if not know, who are not in church, that this is true of us. And this is one of the problems in making Christianity about the culture wars. You see, Jesus is operating in the midst of a culture war, and he certainly wants to see people transformed. But he goes about it in a radically different way than the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. Jesus is calling us into mission, into his mission. One of the stories that most illustrates this for me is told by Philip Yancey in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. It's actually a story that was told in the Boston Globe in June of 1990 about a very unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston to order the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made their selections of china and silver, pointed to pictures of flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to, well, $13,000. That's $1990. And after leaving a check for half that amount, the couple went home to flip through a book of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mail, the potential groom got cold fleece. This is, you know, it's a big decision to make. You know, maybe we need to take a little more time to think this over. When his angry fiance uh, returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager couldn't be more understanding. She said, the same thing happened to me, honey. And then she told her the story of her broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The deposit, well, she could only get $1,300 back. The rest she'd have to forfeit. Or she could go ahead with the meal. She said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really sorry. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. You see, 10 years before, this woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg. And she had the wild notion of using her savings uh, to treat the down and out of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was in June of 1990 that the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party that had never seen before. Uh, 
the hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. And, <laughs> and then sent invitations to the rescue missions and the homeless shelters. And on a warm summer night, people who were used to peeling pizza off a cardboard dined instead on cordon bleu. The Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens with aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced into the night to Big Ben music. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the scandal of Jesus' ministry, of his profligate love. And it is the scandal in which he calls you, if you're his follower, to share in. I find this very, very challenging that Jesus calls me, not just as a pastor, but just as a rank-and-file member of the church to love the least and the lost, the unlovely people that I would be disinclined to even extend my time to. Dear Christian, do you see what Jesus is really like? Are you so far from your old life or from recognizing who you really are to see that you are one of the wicked that Jesus has loved. And dear church, will you find a way, a way together to begin to love the least and the lost? Let's pray. Most gracious God, I'm humbled by what I read Lord, I know I'm a great sinner, and yet I've not loved as you love. Change me and all who hear this prayer and identify with it. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, this 